you are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and join Matt Haig in conversation with Matthew Stadlin, recorded as part of the Rayworth's Harrogate Literature Festival. Enjoy. My name is Zoe Robinson, I'm Managing Partner at Rayworth's. I'm delighted that we are sponsoring Rayworth's Harrogate Literature Festival. A very warm welcome to this Rayworth's Harrogate Literature Festival event. It's part of the Harrogate International Festivals. My name is Matt Stadlin. I'm a presenter, I'm a broadcaster, I'm a producer, I'm a, a writer. And I'm so pleased that you can join us for this, I think, very special occasion. We've got an amazing guest. It's Matt Haig. He doesn't look um, completely different from me. <laughs> completely? Not, not completely different. We're both, you've kind of got red hair, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't realise I used to have red hair. I used, when I actually had hair on top, I used to convince myself I was sort of like chestnut brown. But when my beard comes in, it just totally, I'm totally ginger bearded. But so, yeah, yeah, we're, we're kind of uh, cousins, aren't we? Almost. When I interviewed you for, for my old LBC show, and I put a photo of you up on Instagram, and it was next to a photograph I put of myself, a sort of coming up photograph to to, to promote the show and get people to watch. And I, I did definitely see some similarities. Anyway, it's, it's a great privilege to be, be, to be joined by a fellow ginger beard. Yes, absolutely. And at least you've still got some, some action going on up here as well. Yeah, I'm doing my best. We'll see. I don't know whether it will survive the next lockdown. I haven't said, I haven't said that if people want to, to, to contribute, they, they can, because these are free events and it's really important, I think, to support the arts and support the festivals, support the Harrogate. Festival, and we are particularly grateful to, to Rayworth's LLP solicitors for, for continuing to sponsor the festival. It's just absolutely crucial. So thank you to you guys. Matt has written lots and lots of books, as you know. He's written non-fiction books. He's written novels. He's written children's books. Matt, I, I wonder how you sort of self-identify. Do, do you just see yourself as a storyteller, first and foremost? Yeah, I mean, the weird thing for me was uh, when I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, because that became my biggest book at that point, And that was nonfiction. And that was totally new for me. But I mean, I've always sort of like thought of myself as like someone who writes novels, whether that's for kids or for adults and makes up stuff and fiction. And then, you know, I was Mr. Struggling Writer for ages, wrote about 10 um, novels, if you include the kids books in there as well, the four reasons to stay alive. And I'd always been dreaming of having the big book, the crossover, the sort of bestseller. And then that happened with Reasons to Stay Alive, which was on the one hand great, because it was a successful book and what I wanted and it was helping people and felt like I was doing something useful. But on the other hand, it was very, it was kind of strange in career terms because I, I suddenly became known as sort of like the mental health person. It's very nonfiction. I was having a lot of emails from people who were sort of seeking professional advice and I'm obviously not a doctor or even a, a trained Samaritan or anything. So it was a kind of new world for me. But I still, I still um, see myself first and foremost as a writer and as a fiction writer. Um, it, does, it does kind of come with some responsibilities, does, doesn't it? When, when you put yourself out there in the way that you have or I have, I mean, for four years doing those LBC shows, I'd often yep. talk about very intimate stuff, including personal stuff to me and you do get a lot of people then getting in touch and, and trying to tell you their stories and so forth yeah. and I always 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 
try to respond. I hope I've always responded, but I, I make clear that if we're talking about mental health, and, I'm, and I, I made this clear on air as well, that I'm not a mental health expert. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just a person who went through an experience, came out of that experience, wanted to make other people feel less lonely and slightly more hopeful within their experience. But yes, in terms of official advice and things like that, I mean, the scariest thing I ever got was actually just before, just before COVID kicked off this year, I had a, a woman message me on Twitter who'd actually done something. She'd actually, she was in a life or death situation. She'd, she'd uh, made an attempt on her own life. And um, I was literally the only person, she was living on her own. I was the only person she had told she had some kind of anonymous Twitter handle. And I, had, I was in this sort of moral quagmire of what do I do? Do I actually go online and, you know, blast this woman's Twitter handle everywhere and ask where she is? So I was in contact with the police simultaneously. And, you know, having a, and I just thought, oh my goodness, this is enough. I mean, that story ended okay. She was fine. They found her that night, but... That was just just too much too much responsibility. I felt for, I was like I didn't sign up for this. This is too much. But um, it, it, on the one hand, it's lovely that people feel they can um, share their stories, and often that's all they're wanting to do. They're wanting to just have a place to um, share. So I get lots of those sort of messages. I just sort of thank you messages, but it's more the ones where you feel like you, you an obligation to actually do something because someone's in a serious situation that, that I struggled with for a long time and there was even a moment back in 2016 where I would have pressed the red button not to have written reasons to stay alive um, and yeah I mean uh, that's helped the most people that book but it's also given me the most flack in other ways you know certain people say oh you're making money out of mental health and this that and the other it's like well yeah I mean that's what, what you know that's what mental health professionals do that's what doctors do that's you know it's not really you know I, I certainly didn't write that book to make money or for even any sort of sensible career reasons I got paid a lot less money for it at the time my publishers were trying to talk me out of it it was just a book I wrote because um well a friend asked me to write it and I, I thought after mulling it over it seemed like a, a good thing to do where it was just trying to the process of working out what sort of book it was going to be was it going to be a straightforward memoir or anything else anyway that was a long ramble about reasons to stay alive well it's interesting you talked about merely pressing the red button but you would have pressed the red button not to have written it just just for a moment because that links into the midnight library you yeah. used a, a, a clever device as a means of, of seeing what our alternative lives might have been like or, or perhaps still could be like and it's a book full of hope. I say alternative. Alternative, strictly, I think, comes from the Latin alter and therefore means one or other. But actually, in the Midnight Library, there are so many different ways that life could have turned out or still could turn out. Yes, this is true. And actually, there is some science to this. Not science to a Midnight Library, but there is science to this sort of infinite multiverse. There's a great book called The Hidden Reality by um, an American physics guy called um, Brian Green, who's their kind of equivalent of Brian Cox. And he... I went, interviewed him, actually. I interviewed him oh. a while ago. Yeah, he's an incredible mind. So lively. And he was, he was just brilliantly able to answer all these 
questions, these layman questions that I was throwing him, at him about science and the universe and the meaning of life and philosophy just went bang, bang, bang. It was, it was really good. Oh, amazing. The How To Academy, the podcast is up, actually. Oh, brilliant. Okay, I'll check that out. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, well, but in, in his book, The Hidden Reality, he, he, he does a very clever thing where he takes about 10 different branches of modern day scientific thinking so a lot of quantum physics and mechanics and all of that and different versions of science which all leads to the same conclusion which is there are more universes than this one um how those the mechanics of those universes obviously change some of those universes are literally almost like tracing paper over this one and it's just like if we make a different decision in this moment then we're literally veering off into a different universe uh, others are the more sort of, I suppose, old-fashioned idea of beyond this universe, we then encounter another universe. And all of them have their own supporters, but basically all the scientific community who study physics believe in some kind of potential for parallel universes. Um, and that's been an idea that's fascinated me for ages. I love the idea of parallel lives, of how you know whether we could go back and correct things or regret you know it's like like we're living it's like our lives are a first draft and as with any first draft you're thinking oh what if i'd have just changed that or taken that paragraph out or put something else in and so I, i've always thought it has a great sort of novelistic potential but obviously it's been done a lot of times in in various ways in films and books you know you've got kate atkinson uh, life after life which is sort of kind of similar and um many of the books which i'm forgetting right now uh, you've got it's a wonderful life and sliding doors in terms of movies so it's been done a lot so i knew i needed I, I, I knew i needed something slightly different to add to the mix and it was when i got the concept of a library itself i thought okay yeah this will work because a library kind of is that anyway a library kind of is uh, access to other worlds and other lives and it's a kind of statement on reading itself i mean the, in the in in the book it's not a metaphor it's an actual thing or that she perceives um but i i personally like the idea of it being a reflection on what libraries actually are too it's it's, it's a, there's a sort of meta element to it as well of course because you're an author you deal in books and you're using books as your mechanism for exploring the story. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose it was quite self-conscious in that sense. Um, but I always feel like, because uh, a lot of my books are in this sort of speculative fiction terror territory. Um, and, and I wrote one called The Humans a few books ago, which was about an alien coming to Earth uh, and possessing the body of this Cambridge uh, professor of mathematics. And my, I had such a battle with my editors because they, they wanted it to just be a per, to end up being an unreliable narrator and he had had a breakdown. He wasn't really an alien and aliens don't really exist. And, and I, I always fight for it, you know, like with the Midnight Library. And well, no, 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 this is all happening. Whereas she perceives Midnight Library, even though it might be her translation of the complexities of the quantum universe, she's actually in the Midnight Library. And um, so I, I always feel like you sort of owe it to the reader to give them the credit where they can read it as a fable if they want to, but they cannot necessarily think this is real or what really happens, but they actually buy into it in the story. It's almost like, I think I get it from children's books 
where you kind of go with the daydream, you go with the flight of fantasy and actually commit to it and believe in it rather than do the typical literary thing of sort of backing out and sort of, well, ghosts might not be real, these might be hallucinations. I like, you know, throw, throw myself into it. There's a sense, isn't there, that people can feel that they're on the outside, that somehow everyone else is getting it right and, and we're getting it wrong. And, and you address that as an author. And it's a really important message, isn't it? That actually there's so much more commonality, so much more shared experience than perhaps we feel in our loneliest moments. Yes, and I think it's a particular, particularly um, contemporary feeling, this feeling of comparison, not just comparison with other people, but comparing how things could have been. We kind of you know it's the age of comparison shopping obviously and you know people who bought this also bought this and um it's the age of instagram and twitter and facebook and it's an age of overload of other possibilities and other lives and it's paralyzing um one of my favorite um little facts which i think sneaks its way in somewhere into the novel there's a character called ash who, who mentions it um, one of my favourite little facts is it, it, it relates to Dunbar's number. Do you know Dunbar's number? Which is 150. Uh, 150 being um, the average size of the average human settlement anywhere on Earth up until the 18th century. So all through the Doomsday Book, for instance, the average size of a village was around 150 people. Um, when they go back to sort of Neolithic sites and archaeological digs, they often find that 150 or 140 or 160 skeletons all together and so the evolutionary psychologists have taken this and said actually humans have evolved to meaningfully know within the course of their whole life about 150 people from birth to death now of course before we have our breakfast we can encounter 150 people um you know just by scrolling instagram 150 new people and these wouldn't be the cross-section of people we'd have encountered in close proximity to us in our community. These would be the most sort of exceptional outliers on earth. You know, these would be like the most conventionally beautiful, the richest, the most talented, this, that, and the other. And so we've got a million way, new ways to make ourselves feel inadequate or like we need to achieve more just to sort of stay level or to accept ourselves. Couple that with kind of like the sort of dreams we're fed on reality TV where... I don't know. I'm, a, I'm not a snob about reality TV. I'm not a snob about your X Factors and Britain's Got Talents and all of that. But one gripe I've always had with them is in the, in the sentimental aspect of backstory. The backstory always is ordinary life is something to be saved from. And like Simon Cowell is like the genie who can wave the wand and transport you to the shiny world of red carpets and paparazzi and glitter and movie premieres and record contracts and you'll become One Direction, and then you'll be saved from your life in Barnsley or whatever it is. And it, it, I don't know, I mean, that, that's probably just a kind of minor thing, but it, it's something I've noticed that we, 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 our obsession with fame and fortune, which has always been there, it was all there throughout the 20th century, has been sort of mechanized, monetized in new ways in the 21st century. And when you couple that with the power of the internet and social media and, you've got a whole generation growing up now who present themselves more than they are actually being themselves, who turn their own lives into magazines of themselves. And I'm not, again, saying this in a snobby way, because I use the internet far more above 
average. I'm 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 like a I'm like a uh, Instagram addicted 15 year old. I'm just like you know I'm, I'm all over it. But I do also I'm self aware in terms of of knowing the sort of mental health aspects of that. And I also believe that in 10 years time, or maybe maybe a bit longer, I don't know, depending how quickly we get a flag game on this. And I think it's already starting to happen. We will really see it as a health issue because I think two things are already happening. One is we're, we're getting a better understanding of what mental health is, not just in terms of the personal aspect of mental health and the experience of mental health and the backslapping and congratulating each other for talking about mental health, but in the, in the wider context of causes and social causes of mental health just has you know over the last 50 100 years we, we've worked out a lot of the things that are bad for our physical health i think we're starting we're a bit further down the path but we're starting to to understand that um social media might be the equivalent of tobacco but mentally it might be the equivalent of fast food but mentally and it's not about banning these things but it's about actually understanding the health um, effects of these things yeah and, and there's as well as the, the, the concerns about inducing feelings of of anxiety and inadequacy and problems possibly with addiction distraction taking you away from more nourishing interactions with the world and with those around you in your immediate environment there's also i think potentially a problem with encouraging people to feel like they need or should desire followings followers yeah and that's not just just about inadequacy it's not just oh i don't have as many followers as i would like and if you're into followers you're never going to have enough because yeah. you're always going to want to get more in your case you get to four hundred thousand you probably want to get to five hundred thousand in my case i get to eighteen thousand i want to get to nineteen thousand whatever it is yeah so it, there's something sort of potentially quite problematic with the idea that we are almost being encouraged to be mini Jesuses. The word follower, yeah. Jesus, don't you? Jesus had followers. And we are now being incentivized to put ourselves out there as people worthy of being followed. And there's something slightly weird about it. There's something very weird about it. And also you get to a certain point where it, it's, it becomes a trap anyway, because you, you, you then either, like people have to either see you as a hero or a villain. And you know, being a neurotic person with low self-esteem, I, I can cope with people liking me for being a hero, but more often than not, certainly on Twitter, you, you, you get the villain or the pile on. And it, it's like, in both senses, it's not actually seeing you as a human being anymore. It's seeing you as this sort of abstract hero of what they want to think you are, or this abstract villain of who they want to imagine you are and neither is a true picture and both are actually quite stressful because one's like this thing that you feel like you have to live up to and the other is just like oh god am I really this bad have I am I really responsible for I don't know Donald Trump being elected or whatever it is today that you, you want to blame me for and um yeah I, I I find I find it all quite scary but you're right it does encourage followers it encourages also to quantify our lives numerically and then anything that does that and we've got increasing amounts of measurements where we value achievement obviously we've always had things like earnings and stuff like that but now we've got things like step counts we've got bmi indexes 
we've got um, you know Twitter followers, Instagram followers, uh, you know how popular tweets are, how many you know, friends we've got on Facebook. We've got everything is um, becomes a number, and as soon as something becomes a number, obviously it's a metric that can be measured. So increasingly, we're we're valuing human existence on things that are finite rather than things that are infinite. You know, instead of placing infinite value on a friendship, it now has a numerical value. And so it's therefore, however big the numbers are, it's automatically reduced because it's becoming, you know, you can have Kardashian levels of followers, but it's still a measurement. So you're still in the metric scale of um, quantifying things. Whereas, um, not to be too soppy about it, I think, you know, that, idea of infinite value, of human value, um, we're, we're losing that a little bit. And we're, we're placing humans next to each other on, on, on charts, um, when we're online at least. And you know, we don't do this with newborn babies. No one looks at a newborn baby and sees a lack of followers or uh, you know, wonders what the BMI is or you know, wonder how much they're going to earn or this, that and the other. I mean, most people don't. Um, I mean, there have been cases of babies who are haven't even been born yet, who've got like 100,000 followers on Instagram because they're, they're going to join a family of Instagram influencers. That has happened a few times. But in the general sense, we, we value a baby um, because it's a new human life full of potential. And yeah, I think we need to treat ourselves like babies in that sense a bit more and actually um, value our intrinsic human worth rather than because of what we're doing or because of what we're saying online or because of our current political opinion that day or whatever it is. The, the risk is, as you say, I mean, that friends, good friends can, can suddenly become part of a lineup. And, and the risk is that de-individualizes people, doesn't it? It depersonalizes things. You're emphasizing quantity over quality. I love the idea that you see friendship as an infinite thing and, 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 and something that shouldn't be categorized and lumped together. And I guess there's also an issue, I think, with, as you, you talk about tobacco and maybe alcohol and uh, possibilities of addiction, if you get a, a, a great response to a tweet, as I very occasionally have, and, and you get thousands of likes or thousands of retweets, it gives you this dopamine hit, I, I, I imagine. I mean, I don't know anything about dopamine, but I imagine it's something like that. It gives you some sort of high. Yeah. And for a, it's the opposite, of course, of pylon which can be a very negative experience if you don't get your filters right. And I, I've been attacked by sort of 2,000 trolls in a day or two once, and it's, it, it, you know, I'm thick-skinned, um, but, it, but it sort of can almost spill into, or some people can spill into what it must be like to be bullied in the, in the playground. It's quite a nasty experience. But even with the high stuff, when you get that hit, and the lights keep going, and maybe if you're really lucky, it lasts 24 hours, after the, after the lights stop, and it's, it does sort of fall off quite quickly, you, you feel a sense of emptiness and you suddenly realize that it was just 140 characters or 280 characters or whatever it was. It, it wasn't a great achievement on your part. It probably played to an echo chamber. Yeah. And anyway, now the love, the love in has stopped and you're left with your reality. And I think, I think it, just like other addictions can, I, I imagine, it, it can sort of create loneliness. It, it, it might not be entirely different to someone who's addicted to sex. You yeah. keep going back for more, but you beca perhaps become more and more lonely. Yeah, the, the thing you want to satisfy the craving actually feeds the craving. So, you, so we're continually 
with social media, the lo it offers the promise of connection and you get little tiny grains of it. And it, but it never fills you up. It's like eating meringue, isn't it? And it, it never, you never feel sated, but it, it, it's always sort of like tantalizing close. It's always offering you something because you, you, know, you, you know in the abstract that you are actually interacting with human beings, but it never actually feels like that. It's never sort of four dimensional reality. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm increasingly disillusioned with Twitter particularly. I mean, I know the, the, the others like Facebook and Instagram have, have their own health issues and mental health issues. And I think Instagram can be particularly toxic for young people who are bothered about their body image and all of that stuff. I can, I can totally see that. But from my middle-aged male perspective, I find Instagram relatively like a safe space where people just try and be nice to each other. Whereas, and it's often performative and fake, but I prefer that to the performative fake nastiness, which you get on Twitter, where people have to be as angry as possible. And I often notice, actually, the thing I notice is when, when I actually carefully consider a tweet and, and write a nuanced tweet and try and be as wise as you can be within the short space of the tweet, it normally doesn't make much of a ripple. But if I'm, if I'm not thinking, if I, I'm just using my sort of monkey brain and just sort of instinctively writing something really one-dimensional and angry or um, excited or something really not thought out, then those things will, will blow up as a sort of instinctive emotional reaction. So I don't think it encourages any kind of depth of thought or I don't think it's good for debate in general. It is interesting though that, that what you say there, that, that, that at least a genuineness, a sort of freshness, a realness can be picked up on. If, if you're yeah. overly contrived, that might not, as it were, work. But it's also curious that here I am talking to one of the country's best-loved novelists, and we're spending a great chunk of our valuable time together talking about social media, which is a sign definitely of the times, perhaps a sign of how you and I spend yes. probably a little bit too much of my time. But I, I, I want to get back to your writing and, and ask you, well, as a, as a segue into it, do, do you think your experience of social media, because you are on it a lot, has impacted in any way on your on your writing, positively or negatively? Yeah, um, both probably. I, I feel like the negative is quite an obvious one. The negative is just that social media takes too much time and attention away from um, what you're doing, whatever you're doing. I mean, I, I, I tried to be very disciplined with the Midnight Library. I had a sort of two months last year where I, I, I wasn't taking my... Um, phone to bed. I was, uh, you know, leaving my phone charging. I wasn't having Sundays online at all. I was, you know, doing various little things uh, to try and get out of that mentality. And uh, I get to a point with a book where I get so into the book, it overtakes being bothered about Twitter or worrying about who's being nasty to me or any of those sort of silly um, things. And, you know, you get into the zone eventually, but it takes a bit longer in the social media age, I'd say, to get into that pace. Um, for positives, though, I don't even know if it's positives, but things that have definitely shaped it. I, I feel like books are important, more important now than ever because they're this sort of like safe space away from that world of instant interaction and performance where yes you kind of in a very cerebral way interacting with the text you're reading but it's you're not having to click a like button you're not having to share it you're not having to get back to a whatsapp message you're, you're just having a deep level sort of social interaction 
with maybe someone who, who's been dead a hundred years and you're, you're absorbing in, into it. So I think I feel like books are, are more important than ever, but are, I, I, I feel like my writing more than some other writers is sort of reflecting the times and maybe the attention deficit level. I'm, I'm quite consciously aware that I'm com we've got so much competition now. If you're write, reading a book, there's a million distractions. Someone's probably got their phone beside them that's buzzing. They've got uh, five Netflix series they're feeling behind on or whatever it is. And I feel like books have to sort of like acknowledge the times they're in. And it happens quite naturally with me. And, and since my very first novel, I've been, for instance, a fan of super short chapters. Like I'll mix it up so there'll be a sort of a, um, a long chapter and then like a chapter that's like a, a sentence long. And I feel that's kind of like appeals to the way our brains are at the moment where we, we want instantaneity and um, to absorb things quite quickly. But to try and provide depth within that um, is what, what I, I sort of try and challenge myself to do. In the Midnight Library, I think it, the fact that you're going through a story where she's literally living different lives the midnight library itself is like some amazing um post-life pre-death social media where she can actually become all the different things all the different lives she's seeing so there's something equivalent it's like a literary instagram feed where you're seeing lots of different lives i suppose so that might be an influence as well um and also in a very literal sense i've often tried things out if I'm unsure about something, I'll try something out online. I was unsure about the title. And it's, it sounds a small thing, but titles are so big, you have to get it so right. And I, I just didn't know whether it should be Midnight Library or The Midnight Library. And so I did a Twitter poll. And it was, I think it was like 68.32 in favour of the definite article, in favour of it being The Midnight Library. Um, rather than going to Midnight Cowboy and just doing Midnight Library. So it can, it can have its uses sometimes when you want to test things out. And I also think it's kind of leveled within book world. I think it's, it's been quite democratic in some ways because when I was first published in 2004, it was still to get your book noticed. Um, there were still relatively few gatekeepers in charge of our of what made a book a sort of big hyped book. There was a few literary editors at the Times and the Guardian and Telegraph and stuff and um, Radio 4. There was a few um, people you had to impress to, to become, you know, a sort of a Martin Amos or a Jeanette Winterson or whoever it was. Whereas I feel the internet age and the age of the blogger and the vlogger and Goodreads and Amazon, which I know is a kind of evil word, but in, in the sense of customer reviews, it's the one positive aspect of that. I feel like readers have a voice now. Readers are the media now. So I feel this whole concept of literary versus commercial, of genres being a little bit frowned upon, that has changed. Obviously, snobberies are still there and sometimes snobberies are perfectly fine and we all have personal tastes and all of that but I feel like things are getting mixed up a little bit 
more. I, I genuinely don't know I get, if I'm a literary, literary or a commercial writer, and I genuinely ignore that distinction because I used to be called a literary writer, but that was mainly because I was published by Jonathan Cape, um, the sort of literary imprint of Random House, and also because my books didn't sell. So you are therefore literary, whereas if you start selling books, you become commercial. Or if you start having a bit of optimism in your, your work, it becomes sort of popular fiction. And it's, it's very arbitrary what these uh, distinctions are. And um, I feel like it's now easier in the internet age to kind of ignore all that book industry stuff, that marketing stuff. But especially if you do have some kind of social media presence where you, you can be your own marketing department. So I, I will shamelessly now plug a book on the internet. My, my view on it is, so long as I'm writing the book I genuinely want to write, uh, that I would be writing for myself purely, I feel you also have to have a little bit of a business hat or a commercial hat. If you want to have a career rather than just a one-off book, if you want to have a career as a writer, you do have to think about the direction of that career, who your readers are occasionally. I don't mean when you're writing the book, but when you're promoting the book. So I'll be shame, shame, a shameless market trader when I'm you know, promoting the book. I'll be shouting about my bananas. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, and I feel like you, you keep the artist hat on and the creative hat on when you're writing the thing and you do it your way. But the price of that, especially if you want to keep, you're not doing a series and you're wanting to keep free from idea to idea, you, you, as your safety net, you kind of need to also have the marketing head on all the other time when you're, when you're sort of doing your sort of, I don't know, Twitter giveaways or you're retweeting praise or whatever. I'm quite shameless about that. I don't know why that is. I just sort of grew up in a working class market. I don't, I don't get that literary thing where authors shouldn't be, you know, it's like, well, it's a job, it's a trade. You've got to kind of do that and yeah, be as creative and artistic as you want with your book or your sculpture. But then when you've got your, gallery where your sculpture's in, you, you, you want people to come in and see it. Well, it, it comes across as very natural and as though you're sort of almost can't believe your own success and your own luck. And, and, and it, I think it, 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 on Twitter, it comes across as though you're sort of sharing in the enjoyment with your fans, like you're all part of the same process. So I, I like that. I mean, there's so many jumping off points from, from what you've just said, so many different threads to follow. Just, just, and I want to talk about how, because you mentioned how immersed you, you become in a, a novel. And I want to talk about that in that process in a moment, but it's interesting because you mentioned Amazon. I know you didn't mean literally, it's an evil word, but it's a sort of interesting relationship that authors can have with Amazon because I'm sure it, it, it does us a huge amount of good in, in some ways. I mean, I'm thinking of my book and I'm aware that there's probably carbon footprint issues or might be carbon footprint issues. And, and yet I, I will put the Amazon link up on, on Twitter. I mean, there is my, my book. I'm sure the majority of what I would have thought, the majority of people probably did buy it on Amazon. So it, it, it helps get books out there, doesn't it? It helps circulate books. But we have to remember that local bookshops are really, really important. And I certainly put out links to my, my local bookshop when I was promoting the book. It's incredibly complicated because I, I used to be like, I used to be one of these authors who, who would publicly slag off Amazon sometimes. But then people were saying, well, you know, I, I can't afford to buy a hardback book any other way. Or, you know, I, I have a Kindle for accessibility reasons and Amazon's the main, main thing for that. So, so it's extremely complicated. And also, there are certain books that would 
have totally slipped under the radar of the old, very London-centric, very sort of old boys club literary world that now, because of uh, online selling, have an audience. I mean, there's, there's super famous examples like, I don't know, The Martian. The Martian is a self-published book which was a massive success as an ebook on Amazon that every publisher ignored because it wasn't um, your typical genre book and it wasn't sort of like a serious book. And um, then, then it was later picked up by whichever publisher it was and became bestseller. So there's lots of those examples as well where, where famous books only exist really because of the sort of online selling. Um, because they can so, yeah. get the momentum. I mean, you, you, you put something out there and people can just buy it immediately. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, they know where to go. And if you're promoting yourself online, then, on, you know, sell it, selling it online. I mean, I think, I think with this, the Midnight Library, it's probably the first time in recent years I haven't done Amazon links. But that's only because I've been linking to Waterstones because they've got a special edition. But yeah, I, I, I think it's... Also, I don't think it's solely or primarily even the author's job to fix this yes we have to acknowledge that amazon are monopolizing things and possibly not in a good ways but it wasn't authors for instance who did things like the uh, uh, netbook agreement or leaving the netbook agreement which happened in the uk famously around supermarkets and things like tesco's back in the year 2000 which basically is the reason why in Britain, unlike say in Germany, the price on the back of a book is almost never the price someone pays for that book. You go to Germany and you, you see however many euros on the back of a book, that's how many euros you're paying for that book. Whereas in Britain, ever since your three for two offers at Waterstones, your one for twos in supermarkets, your Amazon, Amazon famously match price match the lowest discount that's going on it um you know you, you people don't expect to pay that so margins and margins have got smaller and smaller so writers have got less room to move um in terms of their business model and how, how picky they can be and you know most writers want to be read so if, if people are buying all their books on amazon you, you can't, and they're doing it for financial reasons or accessibility reasons, you can't say, oh no, I don't want you as a reader. So yeah, it, it's tricky. I want to ask you then about being immersed in what you do and, and just flesh out a little bit for us, and there's so many more questions I want to get to, but the experience of writing a book, you say that you, you, you kind of forget about social media for a while when you're really into it. What's it like being involved with those characters? What's it like being involved with Nora and the Midnight Library? What's it like when you, you really get down to the writing of it? How quickly do you write it? Do you still think, think about it when you're eating your breakfast? Do you go to bed thinking about the characters? Do you wake up thinking about them? How, how, just how immersive is it? Tell us a little bit about the process. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm seen as a prolific writer because I technically have written quite a lot of books. But... I think in one sense, I'm a slow writer in the sense that while I'm writing other books, I, I often have an idea that's bubbling at the back for ages. And this was probably 10 years in the sort of bubbling, bubbling, bubbling. And it took, took me years to sort of get the idea of the Midnight Library, but I'd always wanted to do a parallel life book. So 
there's this sort of slow burn phase where it's kind of there but not there and you're not putting your main focus in it and you're just occasionally thinking about it and daydreaming it and then there's the get serious phase where you you, you realize that this is a book you're going to write and you sort of like initially force yourself to get immersive into it and then it it overtakes you and you, you naturally get immersive the chat problem i had with the midnight library at first is i couldn't see the central character i started writing before there was nora i was writing as a man i was writing about a man called adam and i wasn't seeing this character this suicidal male character because it was me basically i was writing myself and it was um too close to me it was like when you look at your face in the mirror for too long and you have no idea what you look like and you can never properly know what you look like without being outside of your body which never happens so i wasn't seeing the central character at all so i had the neat concept of the, the library and i was seeing all that i was liking the idea of the books opening and i had the idea of a book of regrets but the man i wasn't seeing at all and um, very often the best changes you make to a book are the sort of big but simple changes. So changing that character to be a female character, which is always a risk when you're a male writer, um, just felt right. And I didn't want it to be right because I thought, oh, I could get flat being a, you know, male privileged writer writing this from inside the head of this woman, even though it's not a first person story, I'm very much in her head for a lot of the time. And I don't really want to do this. And I think that's when you know it's the right decision, when you still, still feel like you have to do something, even though there's a sort of nervousness about it. And you think, oh, that's, that's the right decision. Like Reasons to Stay Alive always felt like that. I felt so nervous about it. I was so unsure about whether I should be writing it. And it was right. And I feel like you sometimes need that little feeling in your tummy that's a bit apprehensive. And I definitely had that about Nora. But from the moment I started writing Nora, I saw her as someone separate to me. And it made me easy to, it made it easy to understand her. And also it kind of gave me a green card to put actually more autobiographical stuff in there because it was a shield of it being a, a character who was overtly not me. Um, so, you know, all that stuff, the sort of heavy stuff at the start where she's sort of, moping wearily around Bedford and feels like everything's going wrong. That was me moping around Croydon when I had a sort of dead-end job in Croydon. I was on the cusp of having a full-blown breakdown under those sort of heavy South London skies. And I, I, I can really remember that feeling and put a lot of that in, into her. And um, yeah, so, so in a strange way, probably more than my other sort of male characters, she's more autobiographical in some ways. I had to be aware I was writing female character, but I didn't think that changed the sort of universal feelings of depression, suicidal feelings. It was more about how people would treat her, you know, at various points in the book, you know, the expectations people have for a daughter, especially for slightly old-fashioned parents, might be slightly different to expectations for a son. Um, you know, people would be treating her in a slightly more sexist fashion, but I didn't want to overdo do it. I, I definitely just wanted to, to be true and not too sort of self-conscious of the fact that I was writing a woman. I just wanted to see her as a character called Nora. Even though you were, you're searching, and I suppose most authors are searching for some degree of universality, even, even though they're not saying this is everyone's experience, you're, you're trying to you're trying to tap into what it is to be human, I suppose. Do you, did you nonetheless actively think, think yourself into a female mind? Did you, did you, I mean, 
how much of work did you do on that and how, how challenging is that? I, there was no process in that sense. It just I was just, I don't know, as soon as I saw her and I got a few little physical details of her, I never put too much physical description down. I don't like to see them too much because I feel like um, that prohibits other readers from seeing them. I feel like when you've got too much description of clothes and hair and height, you kind of, you see them within that paragraph, but then you kind of think, oh, what, what am I doing? Are they wearing a tweed jacket? Or I feel like having one little detail um, is enough for that. And with Nora, yeah, it was, uh, it's not necessarily I saw her, but I just sort of felt her mind and I felt, and I understood her and I understood her, you know, she's not even a character who, who's looking for reasons to live. She's looking for the will to want to live. So she's that far removed. She's that in a state of depression. And I related to that feeling. And um, the challenge with Nora was that, you know, characters typically have to want something. And when you're depressed, you don't have that kind of will or agency. So taking a depressed character is always a challenge. But I suppose in a way she is kind of wanting answers and she's wanting resolutions and she become She's wanting to want something, even if she's not wanting something. So that's kind of wanting. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I suppose with the central character, you, you kind of being them by proxy. So how much is that you changing or they are just a version of you? I don't know. But it always has to feel kind of natural and never really like forced process. Very interesting, Matt, that you, that you say that you like to strip away some of the details because they can be distracting or get get in the way and there are different ways aren't there of writing there's that there's there's that way and and where you see deal to detail as a distraction and then there's say classically maybe the jane austen way where she seems to be so focused on the details that from those details from her very acute observations i don't think i'm just talking about clothes and so forth but mannerisms and so forth yes in that detail you then reach more universal truth yes no and i am for that it, I, it's just i suppose my detail um i, I prefer like flashes of detail like uh, like like when you when you're actually offering detail for it to be very very specific and very sharp but i feel like also if if, if you if you've got like you can almost see someone through dialogue i, I can sometimes think i feel like you know, when, when people always feel the need to add an adjective after sort of like, or an adverb after sort of he said or she said. And often, often I, I like a simple he said and she said, and, and not to put she said tentatively, but to actually put within the dialogue the feeling of that being tentative. So, so you can almost hear it rather than have it over um described but i i do i break all kinds of rules creative writing course rules in the midnight library there's a lot of um telling not showing for instance which again i suppose is the internet influence so that you've actually got literal status updates where she's sort of telling the world what she's feeling and stuff like that and um yeah i think it's useful to know the rules so to know how to break the rules and know that you're breaking rules and there's a reason to break them at certain points. And on that question, just very briefly, of immersiveness, do you sort of go to bed thinking about the next day's writing and, and how, how do you write that? Do you have a, a particular time in, 
in the day when you sit down at your desk? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely, uh, I'm a late night worrier about writing and work. So I'll always think, especially if it's been a, an unproductive day, I, I want to sort of like sort it all out in my head at night or wake up with it. And um, I, I'm no longer doing the thing where I have a sort of notepad by my bed where I, I scribble, but I did go through years of that. I trust myself to, you know, notepads are great, but I think sometimes you, your mind is a natural filter. The sort of memorable stuff it will remember and the stuff that you don't remember, you don't. Although when you're writing the last half of a novel, I get a sense where you can see the whole novel, you can see the whole shape of it, you know where it's ending, you know the other characters you're going to bring in, but you're kind of worried it's all going to fall out of your ears and you're not going to sort of remember it. I mean, that's, that's when you get the sort of urgency where it feels really 24-7 because you, you're wanting to get it all down before you sort of lose it all because it's just in your head and it's kind of a responsibility to, to get it out there, get the daydream out there. Uh, tell us a little bit about the your sort of multiple selves or if you see yourself as having multiple selves because you, you spend a lot of your time doing this sort of thing when you're promoting as do most authors and that's a version of of you and yep. a way of communicating and it's very natural and then you have your writer self where you're communicating on on, on the page and they're they're different selves aren't they or they're different expressions of you do you sort of see yourself as a united whole and they're just different parts of the same thing or do they feel very different experiences? Well, in a weird way, 2020 has made it feel more unified. Um, in normal times, um, it's often seems a very bipolar existence where you're either sort of shut away at home, you're writing, you're not seeing anybody or you're out in a tent at a festival and you're sort of having to hobnob with other writers and you're then sort of like signing cues and all that stuff which is exciting but kind of exhausting at the end of it after all the travel and stuff um and this year because of our zoom centric existence has felt like you know well probably because we're always in the same physical place it's felt a bit um different but also, I, I feel, you know, I, it's, it, there's a tradition among writers, and I'm not um, judging any writers, but to almost be a bit um, dismissive about the promotion side or dismissive of social media or dismissive of ever sort of joining that real world in that way and, and, and to kind of retreat into your ivory tower, do the work, let the work speak for itself, um, if you build it, they will come, you know, that sort of attitude, which is the sort of traditional 20th century writer kind of attitude. But in another way, you know, when you're writing a book, it's not necessarily the opposite of being on Twitter or being on Zoom. You know, it is a kind of communication and it's a kind of, you know, publication has the word public in it and you, you are just communicating. And so it's all different types of communication. And, um, you know, that cliche about bookish people being very introverted or um, very shy and very antisocial almost, or wallflowers. I actually see books and reading as a kind of social thing, a kind of deep level 
socializing where you're having a conversation uh, it might be a one-way conversation but you're having a communication with the reader like when you're reading a book you're having uh, you're, you're kind of having a conversation with that writer and um so I, I see it all as um communication really and i also you know, feel very honored always to be asked to do stuff i've still got that i i, I feel so pleased i wasn't a ma massive success for my first book although i obviously wanted that at the time i wanted you know i used to hear of these six-figure advances and think oh i want a bit of that and i i definitely used to resent being the sort of struggling writer who couldn't pay the rent but i'm very glad now that i sort of went under the radar for at least about a decade because it means that i'm sort of grateful for stuff that comes my way now you know it, i know this is not um, the norm for most writers and to be asked to do things all the time and stuff so I appreciate it and I don't I try not to take any of it for granted I have to say no to more stuff now um, and I've got better at saying no I had a few years where I was saying yes to things that I didn't really want to do but yeah I think saying grateful and also st staying with that feeling that you had when you were first a debut writer. I mean, the best thing about writing is writing. And if you don't believe that, then you're probably going to start writing stuff that's not so good or as passionate. I feel like that there's moments in a first draft where you get super excited about it and you can't wait to show them. And that is the same when you're unpublished and you're working on your first manuscript. Uh, to when you know I don't know when you're Philip Pullman working on the next book I feel like if if you've got that that's the purest bit of writing and being a writer and that stays the same and um, the rest of it is nice but it's slightly outside it's so much fascinating stuff to, to ask for that I think we haven't got a huge amount of time left I know but yeah I guess there's a, the, 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 given that you are so generous in engaging with your readership and with the outside world and you enjoy that because we talked about the negatives of social media but presumably there, there's, there's stuff you enjoy about it as well but, but I can imagine that you also have to work a little bit hard to hold on to your integrity as a writer to remember that you are a, that you are a writer and I, I just wonder how you see yourself at the moment Matt because you talked earlier about how you're you know you have low self-esteem what has your success brought to you how has it changed you has it in any way altered your personality because you could these days be famous on twitter and you don't have to leave your living room and uh, and you're famous because you're a writer and you've written all this really important stuff but you you don't have to go anywhere you don't have to go and walk on the red carpet you don't have to stand on the stage although you do at literary festivals and and you've got your kids and you sometimes put them on so social media you've got your wife you've got your home you've got your day-to-day -day life, you go and do your lockdown walks or whatever. You know, in a way, I can imagine that fame, fame might not have changed you at all or not changed your daily reality. You're not, you're not going off and, and, and driving fast cars with a supermodel, or maybe you are, but not as far as I know. And, well, and, I, can't drive. I can't drive, that hasn't changed. And no, no fast cars, we've got our nice little mini. Um, and. Um, no supermodels beyond my wife, obviously. But um, has no. it changed you in any way? Has it what what impact has it had on you? Have you felt your personality in any way shift? You kind of get what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I think it's important to have people who bring you back down to earth. I mean, I've I've never I think simply because I've never really lived in London. I've never uh, not not since I've been sort of well known in any way. 
I, I don't really get, uh, even pre-COVID, I didn't get invited to things that often. And I'd often sort of like turn them down for practical reasons anyway. So I, I'd stop being asked. And um, I think there's points, uh, there's moments where you get can get a little bit risk of inflated or believing your own hype about certainly writing. That's kind of a dangerous thing. That stops you. You need to be self-critical as a writer. It may not be a, a great trait to have in terms of being a happy human being, but you kind of do need as a writer to be able, it's a balance because you kind of need a bit of swagger and confidence and arrogance to think, oh, the world wants to read my daydream. That, that's kind of an arrogant thing. But you also need to be self-critical enough to say, to, to have your own, you know, Hemingway's idea of a bullshit detector and to actually know when you're, you're writing crap and yet and um falling in love with your own style and you you, you know there's certain writers i've admired where the later works you feel oh they've got they're, they're, they're sort of doing a karaoke version of themselves and like then and to, to stay fresh i think you need that um sense of self-criticism or at least self-awareness um but yeah i mean being a writer there's a risk of occasionally feeling self-important but i'm very lucky that i've got three human beings i live with who, who do not do not put up with that for more than five seconds. So, um, and also I had years of agoraphobia. So I, 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 I even though I'm not agoraphobic now, I, I'm sort of, I'm very used to being inside and with my own people and doing that. So this year for me probably hasn't been as challenging. Well, A, because I'm privileged in terms of my job hasn't been affected, but in, in the sort of psychological sense, hasn't been as challenging as it has for some, I'd imagine, because I'm quite used to being in a kind of, well, I was in a lockdown all my 20s, but that was a psychological enforced one. Um, so yes, that was, a, that was a very rambling all over the place answer. But basically, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like, uh, like a lot of neurotic people, I swing between arrogance and deep insecurity. But, you know, when the pendulum's somewhere in the middle, I'm, I'm just about a normal human being. When I started that interviewing, I did a series called Five Minutes With, with a giant alarm clock on, on, on the BBC, and I did about 220 of those. And I had to interview famous people in exactly five minutes, no editing and no notes. And I just, wow. you know, I think, I think Jackie Collins answered the most questions in five minutes. I think she answered about 39, and, and Jonathan Miller wow. answered about six. And neither of them, sadly, are still with us. But I wanted to try and get a sense of who they were. And, and now my interviewing, I guess, has become more about the trade. Yeah. But there is still a desire, isn't there, amongst fans of, of, of well-known people to get to know the person a little bit. And you're very free and generous with your emotions and your feelings about things on Twitter, but I, I, I don't know how much we know about you. And I'm interested to know just a tiny bit about you, about what makes you tick and what excites you, but also your view on whether we should be interested in that and whether we're remotely entitled to, to know anything about you. It's very strange because when I was just a novelist, no one really cared, but then I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive. And I think because I put so much sort of personal stuff in there, it's very strange when people come to you and want to give you a hug and like um, tell you about the life. It's, it's both simultaneously nice and flattering and also slightly unnerving when people know you, but you don't know them. And... I find there's something sort of therapeutic about social media where I'm just talking about my mental health and stuff because I had so long of not doing that. So I, I, I never think I'll get over that. I'll never think I'll get over the fact that 
I actually find it therapeutic to talk about my own mental health because I lost friends because I didn't um, I, I didn't tell them about my depression and I, so I just have to cancel things and not say anything and not give them reasons just because I couldn't talk about it and that went on for like 10 years and I've got a lot of those friends back now from being honest and stuff but um, yeah I, I it's so strange that I'm this public mental health person because I, I, I am actually a private person in lots of ways. And I was very private about my mental health for years and, you know, in unhealthy ways. And then I'd go off and go crazy and, you know, drink far too much and sort of phone Andrea from four in the morning at Victoria Station after having been to a casino and things like that. I did, I did crazy stuff when I was in that limbo myself before being honest about my own um, mental health to people. When I was, I was thinking I was in recovery, but I wasn't properly. Um, so since then, I actually feel the need to have, um, you know, uh, that's why one of the most infuriating comments I get on Twitter and the ones I, that I really take personal are the ones where they say, oh, I'm just talking about mental health for my career or this and ever or selling snake oil. A, I've only written two non-fiction books about mental health out of like 18 books. I've written more books about Father Christmas than I've written about mental health. That's one thing. I've, I've made more money. The book I made most money for was a book about um, Father Christmas because the film, film uh, happens and um, that's coming out next year. So this idea that I'm just there, it's like I, if I had no book career, I would be talking about my mental health online because I, I like it and I like the people sort of responding to it and echoing that experience. And I had years of not having that. And obviously I had a breakdown pre-social media and I just being a young man, I found it incredibly hard um, to talk about for years. And um, so once that genie came out of the bottle, it wouldn't have gone back. And I like talking about mental health and I like feeling of, of some practical use to people because you don't often feel that as a writer because being a writer is quite self-indulgent, certainly a novelist. So the fact that I can do something that feels vaguely helpful to people um, is, a, is a good feeling and it makes me feel like a better person. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know. I mean, aren't we all kind of mysteries to ourselves? I don't really know what motivates me. I, I, I'm kind of, I think there's there's that com combination definitely of sort of low self-esteem, but with a kind of arrogance as well, where because of your sort of low self-esteem or because of not being taken seriously when you were younger or whatever it was, you kind of need to continually prove um, yourself to the world. So you... You, I, I'll kind of never run out of ambition creatively or wanting to be out there in the world because I think there's a bit of, oh, look at me, look at me, because I felt a bit ignored when I was younger or whatever. But beyond that, yeah, I don't really have a psychological total understanding of myself or my... Um, and, and how is your mental health? Um, my mental health is reasonably good. I never say I'm, I'm in one uh, state of 100% wellness like I used to do because I think that's kind of dangerous um, to say because then when you start feeling bad you end up feeling really bad because it's like a, a drop of ink in water and then everything clouds um, because if you start believing the myth that you're 100% mentally well you can't cope with like if you have a panic attack out of the blue or whatever it is I felt like this year it's been a bit of a roller coaster I mean because in one sense as I say I can cope with being indoors and I can cope with lockdown I think better than most people 
but I'm a natural hypochondriac. So my health anxiety has been through the roof, not just about me, but about my family, about my parents. Um, yeah, I haven't been necessarily that easy to live with at times this year and certainly not when I'm phoning my parents and telling them off about things. So that side of it I found quite kind of hard. Um, but I've realized that things aren't binary, things aren't one thing or the other. I, I'm, I, I definitely feel like I'm in a happy patch um, in my life generally, but I'm also in a kind of anxious patch as well. So it's kind of like a lot, you know, I'm feeling a lot of things. Final question there. I, I very rarely done this. I think I've only probably done it once. I did it with Rory Bremner, also for the Harrogate Festival. And I just suddenly realised with him, and I've realised with you that I've sort of parachuted. I mean, lots of people know know your biography, but I've just sort of parachuted you in as an interviewer to this conversation without without sort of explaining, as it were, where you came from. So, can you give us in one minute, oh, maybe good. one and a half minutes, a, a, a potted biography of Matt Hay? as to how you got to where you got to? Um, okay, uh, I was born in Sheffield, raised in Newark on Trent in the Midlands, um, middle class kid, working class town, felt like an outsider. Um, met my uh, wife when I was 19, didn't get married uh, for 13 years after that in Las Vegas. Um, had a breakdown when I was 24, and it was for having the breakdown when I was 24. You know, I've been a sort of hedonist, wanting to escape myself, so it ended up in a beef, took loads of drugs, uh, drank lots of alcohol, and um, I wasn't on drugs when I had a breakdown, but it obviously played a part in being sort of unhealthy. Um, uh, having that breakdown and recovering from that breakdown actually gave me the confidence um, to become. A writer, and the reason it became a confident uh, gave me confidence is because I had I went through three years of thinking it was impossible to recover. Um, I went through a year of thinking it was impossible even to stay alive. I was convinced I'd be dead at the age of twenty-five. Then I wasn't. Then then I thought, well, I've already done an impossible thing. Like it literally was an impossible thing for me. But what I felt like was an impossible thing. So after that, like getting a book deal, having my name in a book, whatever, um, felt like. An easy thing and I, I had this sort of I was like a tank and I didn't care about rejections it was all part of the process I had like 40 rejections eventually got an agent eventually got a book deal wrote a few books for Jonathan Cape got dropped then took things into my own hands just to start the social media age went to Canongate um, kept on um, I sold myself to them got got in through the door was determined not to let go and I'm, I'm still being published and I feel at this moment in time I have quite a lot of creative freedom to write what I want to do and I feel like success is creative freedom where you can do things you, you want to do that's the main definition of success and I, I feel very privileged at this point in time although I, I live a completely imperfect normal human existence. Well, I, I feel very privileged to spend the last hour with you Matt it's been absolutely wonderful it's really interesting to get insights into how you write into how you operate how you think what you think it's just been a real treat so i'm really really pleased you did it because you, you you do lots of this sort of stuff and i know everyone at harrogate will be grateful i know the audience will be grateful the people who run it will be grateful because i do think that that literary festivals are part, part of the lifeblood of this country's culture yeah. i love harrogate can i just say i do I, I know not everyone watching this will be from harrogate but i do like harrogate i lived in york for ages and harrogate um yeah, love Harrogate. We used to have fancy days out and go to Betty's in Harrogate and they've got great, um, hopefully it's going to be open and running normally, Everyman Cinema 
um, in Harrogate too, where I spent my birthday last year um, in Harrogate. So yes, big love to Harrogate. Big love to Harrogate. Big love to you, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone for joining us as well. And of course, the Midlight Library is available on Amazon and all sorts of other outlets. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to The HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.